Easter, so we're going to take a short break from uh, 1 Peter. Instead, we're going to look today at this event that we know of as Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as we do, I want us to see three things. Okay, firstly, we all want a king, even those of you who are small R Republicans. Okay, we all want a king. Secondly, what the problem with kings is. And then thirdly, we're going to see about the king that we all need. Okay, first point then, the desire for a king. Look how uh, Luke begins his account, verse 28. He, Jesus, went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. But of course, Jesus is not alone on the road to Jerusalem, is he? And taking the, um, taking the road with him are the group of his uh, disciples, but not just them. Okay, the feast of Passover, as we were looking in class this morning, the feast of Passover is approaching. And that meant that uh, crowds of pilgrims are flocking, they're piling in to Jerusalem. In fact, contemporary historians like Josephus reckoned that at Passover time, Jerusalem's population, which normally numbered in the tens of thousands, swelled to over a million people. Okay, just imagine what that would have been like as everyone made their way to Jerusalem. You know, several years back, I um, went to Cardiff, the capital city of uh, Wales, to watch Wales play rugby in the Rugby World Cup. And I don't know what you know about the Welsh, but there are lots of things you might know about the Welsh, which I won't bore you with. Um, but they, they love two things. They love rugby and they love singing. Okay? And as kickoff time approached and we walked to the stadium, the crowd started filling the streets from just about everywhere. They came in from the side roads, they come in from the, from the train station and the, the bus station, and from the car parks, and the bars are emptying, because the Welsh also like their beer, and the bars are emptying, and the pubs are emptying, and there is this festival atmosphere. As a sky, it sounds like the air is filled with these singing Welsh voices as everyone is converging on the stadium for the big match. Okay, that is what's going on here, minus the beer. Okay, the, the crowd are coming into Jerusalem. The, this is a crowd Jesus would have found himself amongst. They would be singing the Psalms of Ascents, heading to Jerusalem, not for the big match, but for the feast, the feast of the year. Again, as we were looking at class this morning, for Passover, the feast, the feast of national identity, the feast that remembered how God had delivered Israel out of slavery and made, brought them into freedom and made them his own people. And in this great crowd are people who, they already know about Jesus. There are people from Galilee in the north, and they have heard Jesus' teaching. They have seen Jesus' miracles. And we know that because uh, when the city become aware that the crowd was even more excited than normal, even more noisy than normal, even for Passover, and they're watching this going on, and they, they notice that all of the excitement seems to be centered around some guy riding a donkey, Matthew tells us in his account, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. 
Okay, but it's not just a crowd who've come from Galilee. In his account, John tells us that some in the crowd had, you know, just a few days previously, they had witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and that in one of the villages just outside of Jerusalem. Okay, so there were plenty of people in this crowd taking the road with Jesus who knew that Jesus was someone special. So special that we know that earlier in his ministry, as John tells us, people were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Okay, so when two of his disciples go get a young donkey and bring it to Jesus, and Jesus gets on the donkey, and he starts the descent down into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, it's no surprise, is it, really, that some in the crowd respond the way that they do. As Luke tells us, verses 37 to 38, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And John tells us that the crowd took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That's Luke, that's Matthew, sorry, that's John. And then Matthew says, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. David, Israel's greatest king. And the crowd are proclaiming Jesus, his son, heir to David's throne, heir to his kingdom, the king of Israel, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's coming to Jerusalem, to David's capital city, and he's coming to be crowned. And this is his coronation procession. At least that's their hope, isn't it? That's their expectation. That's why excitement fills the air. And it's why they wave palm branches. You see, since the time of the Maccabees and the Jewish revolt against Greek rule around 200 years before, the palm branch had become the symbol of the Jewish state. They'd even minted it on their coins. So as they wave those branches in the air, they're not, they're not doing that because they've just found some nice foliage to decorate the root. They are waving a symbol of their national identity and their national pride. It would be like a crowd waving the stars and the stripes or the Union Jack, except this is a nation. This is a people who are, who are under the rule of foreigners, under the power of Rome. They're an occupied state. So this would be more like French people in Nazi-occupied Paris waving the tricolor, or people in the Russian-occupied territories now waving the Ukrainian flag. This is a statement. Our deliverer, our true king has come. Why are they thinking like that? I mean, other than what they already know about Jesus, what has triggered that? Well, Matthew tells us, and it's to do with this in their day, 500-year-old prophecy from Zechariah, Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, 
Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. So at least some people saw Jesus deliberately take a donkey and ride that donkey down into the city. And they're thinking, I know what he's doing. I know what he's claiming. And I've seen his miracles and I've heard his teaching. (coughs) And at last, the king, at last, the Messiah, the one who will deliver us from our enemies, at last he's come. And they wanted that to be true. And Zechariah tells us why. You see, right before Zechariah prophesies about the king coming mounted on a donkey, Zechariah has been describing how God will humble the nations and and break the power of the nations who are surrounding Israel, their oppressive power over Israel. And God's going to come and break that power. And this crowd knew all about that oppression. I mean, they knew what it was. They knew what it was to have foreign soldiers watching their every move. They knew what it was to have watchtowers watching over them. They knew what it was to pay taxes, excessive taxes, to that occupying power. A fact made all the worse by the collaborators, the tax collectors who took a share for themselves. And they knew what it was to see any attempt at resistance to be ruthlessly put down. And those who attempt resistance to either be killed or to be sold into slavery. And so when they see Jesus, son of David, sat on that donkey, heading for David's city, they want this to be true. They want their king to come. But of course, it's not just them who want a king. Okay, we all do. Just think about fairy tales and legends. Think about valiant kings or brave princes who ride to their people's rescue. We used to live in uh, the city of Winchester, which is the ancient capital of England. And there's a part of Winchester that is called Sleeper's Hill. And the legend goes that King Arthur and his knights are buried under Sleeper's Hill, sleeping, until the day comes when Britain is in mortal danger and they will awake and ride to the rescue. I don't know about you, I think Britain has had multiple days of mortal danger and they haven't appeared yet, but that's the legend. Or think of Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings. All that is gold does not glitter, Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. And something inside us responds to the idea of the heroic warrior king. Or take the series The Crown, okay, which I've never watched. Okay, but judging by the number of times I am asked by people what I think of it, and by Americans of all people, okay, there is clearly something about royalty and monarchy that fascinates us especially the Americans. Okay, but not just blood royalty. 
Okay, think how we make kings and queens out of politicians or thought leaders or celebrities and athletes and musicians. And we lift them up and we crown them because it is as if deep down we need to crown someone. And the Bible tells us why. It tells us that we are made to adore, we're made to admire, we're made to lift something, someone up. We are made to worship, we're made to love, we're made to delight in. And if we refuse to make that God, if we refuse to crown God, we are going to crown a substitute. And we long for beauty, so we crown the beautiful. We long for greatness, so we crown the leader who promises to make us great again. We long for victory, so we crown the athlete whose victory can become our victory. We long for wisdom, so we crown the one who seems to be able to make sense of life and cut through all the noise. We long for glory, so we crown the celebrity, thinking that we will shine in their reflected glory. We long for bravery. So we crown the one who we think swims against the tide. And so the people that we or our culture idolize and crown tell us what deep down we're longing for. Someone who's beautiful and great. Someone who is brave and victorious. Someone who is wise and glorious. We're longing for a king. The problem is, None of our substitutes pass the test, do they? None of them possess all of those qualities. Ultimately, they let us down. The great become proud. The victorious get beaten. The wise sometimes get it wrong. And the brave believe falsehoods. Second point then, the problem with kings. Our desire for kings, the problem with kings. And some of the people watching what was going on in that crowd, they had a major problem with it, didn't they? As Luke tells us in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Okay, look how Jesus responds to that, verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, even creation even this physical world is longing for a king, longing for someone to come and put everything right again, put it all back together, to put the world back into sync. And yet, the Pharisees, they have a point, don't they? Because they know something of the problem with kings or wannabe kings. And how all of this nationalistic fervor is going to be viewed by the Romans. And how this crowd are ascribing things to Jesus that only God is worthy of. And what that says about the crowd. And what that says about Jesus and the prospect of Jesus actually believing that about himself. You see, kings, don't, kings do not exactly have a great track record, do they? And before kings came on the scene in Israel, the nation was led by judges. But in the face of internal decay and external threats, the people demanded a king, a strong man, a leader, a real leader. 
And it was a move that God said was not so much a rejection of Samuel, who last of the judges, but of himself, of God himself. Because Israel wants a substitute. So before giving them a king, Samuel warns them of the problem of kings. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards. He will take the tenth of your grain. He will take your male servants and female servants. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king who you have chosen for yourselves. In other words, Israel, you want a king and you think that having a king is going to solve your problems. But the reality is very different. The very thing that you think is going to bring you freedom will enslave you. The thing you think will make you richer will rob you. The thing you think will give you victory will control you. And the thing you think will make you better will corrupt you. And he's been proved right, hasn't he? Over, over multiple cultures, over multiple time periods, Samuel has been proven right time and time again. <coughs> so even for a Brit, it is no wonder that monarchies have been replaced by democracies. And yet, someone doesn't have to wear a crown to behave like a king, do they? And if power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, so too can influence, so too can beauty, so too can fame. And so what you realize is that the, the problem is not with the crown on the head, it's with the stuff going on in the heart. But not just with the one who is or who wants to be king, but with those of us who want a king. You see, when Saul was chosen as Israel's first king, 1 Samuel 9 tells us that he was tall and handsome and wealthy. Everything a leader should be. Everything a king should be. And yet he fails the character test. But of course, knowing, even though Samuel knew that, even though Samuel had years of experience, even though Samuel was wise, when Samuel was sent to appoint, by, sent by God to appoint, to anoint Saul's replacement, that doesn't stop Samuel from defaulting to exactly the same external qualities of stature and strength and charisma and looks. And so God has to say to him, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart and instead of the eldest instead of the tallest instead of the most handsome God chooses David the youngest the smallest but if you think about it that is not just a mistake that Samuel or Israel makes the, the, the problem is we can all be tempted to make exactly the same mistake we are hardwired to crown something or someone king. And if it's not God, we will find some other substitute to fill his place. Something or someone that will give us security or peace, that will bring us beauty or love that we're seeking for. 
But just like Samuel, our judgment can also be faulty. To quote C.S. Lewis, we are too easily satisfied. We mistake the substitute for the reality, the temporary for the eternal, and the imitation for the ultimate. But that doesn't mean that your underlying desire and longing for beauty or for glory, for freedom and security, for victory and for wisdom are wrong. What's wrong is the king that we try and choose to meet those longings and desires. Last point then, the king over every king. You see, right before Zechariah tells us of this king coming on a donkey, God says through Zechariah, I will encamp at my house as a guard so that no one shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. In other words, God is saying that he himself will come to Jerusalem and deliver his people from all oppression. And then in the very next verse, he says, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So as Jesus takes that donkey's colt and gets on it and rides it down the Mount of Olives, the message he is sending is crystal clear. This isn't just a king. This isn't just another king. This is the king. This is God come to his house, come to free his people from tyranny. It's why Paul describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Because the firstborn in a family was the heir, heir to the fortune, heir to the throne. And Christ is heir. He's the firstborn of all creation, which means he is the heir of everything. He's the heir to the throne above every throne. That's why Zechariah says of this king on a donkey, his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So there's this crowd who are waving these palm branches and they're thinking in terms of national glory and national identity. And they're thinking of Israel's borders being secured. What would Zechariah have said to them? He would have taken them aside and said, hey guys, your vision is way too small because the rule and the reign of this king is gonna have no borders. It's no wonder that when he is told to silence the crowd, Jesus says, the, if I do that, the rocks will cry out because the king of rocks has come. The king of rocks and of mountains has come. The king of mountains and of valleys. The, the king of valleys and skies and seas and stars and planets has come. The king over everything is riding the donkey down into Jerusalem. It's why as he does, as he comes to his city and his temple, it's not just the crowds 
who should be expecting a coronation. It's not just the crowds who should be expecting him for him to be lifted up on their shoulders and carried to his throne. We all should. And he is lifted up, but not on a throne. You see, Judas Maccabeus, the great Jewish revolutionary leader of two centuries previously, he entered Jerusalem on a war horse. But Jesus comes humbly on a donkey and he is enthroned, but on a cross made of wood, not a throne made of gold. And nailed above his head are the words, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And he is crowned, but with thorns, not silver. And he is anointed, but not with sacred anointing oil, but the spit of his accusers. And two men do take the seats of honour beside him. Those seats that the disciples were so recently fighting over. But they're not dignitaries. They are crucified bandits. <coughs> the scum of society. One at his right, one at his left. And in place of a royal robe, Christ the King, the heir over everything, is stripped naked. You see, this is the king, Paul says in Philippians 2, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Because if Samuel's warning was, you want a king, but that king will make you serve him and he will take from you, then Christ came to serve and not to be served, to give his life for our lives as a ransom for many. And Zechariah tells us why, verse nine to 11. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. And because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And in the ancient world, waterless pits, dry wells, were used uh, somewhere to throw your prisoner. <coughs> Want to get rid of him? Throw him, in the, throw him in the well. Forget about him there. It is an image of the terror a king could inflict on his enemies. But the prophet Jeremiah takes that image and he gives it a different spin. Because through Jeremiah, God says that is exactly how substitute kings and things will treat you. Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Waterless pits. You run after these other things or kings. And we think that they will give us the glory or the beauty, the victory or the security that we're looking for. But as we do, we turn away from the fountain of life and we fall headlong into a waterless pit. But Zechariah says, yeah, but Christ the King has come and he has come to lift you out and to lift you up and to give you what no politician, what no celebrity, what no money or relationship, 
no sex or Instagram experience can ever give you. And he does it, God says, through the blood of my covenant with you, by going into the waterless pit for you, by stepping into your place as your substitute. And as he does, he becomes for us the king of joy. Zechariah says in verse 9, rejoice greatly. Why? Why rejoice greatly? Because your king is coming to you. The king who can give you an identity and a beauty that doesn't evaporate like mist when you get snubbed by someone else. Who can give you a security and a victory that doesn't crumble at each election cycle. Instead, he gives you a joy that endures because it is rooted in his enduring love for you. A love that's willing to go into the pit for you. A love that is willing to die for you. So Zechariah says, rejoice greatly. Your king is coming to you. Secondly, he becomes for us the king over every fear. You see, in his gospel, uh, John takes Zechariah's words, and he, it's like a diamond. He just turns it to show you another facet of joy. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Because when you know that Christ loves you so much that he went to the bottom of the pit for you, he went to the bottom of the pit of shame and of rejection for you, and he did it to lift you up. And when you know that God has raised him up and that your greatest enemies of sin and of death have been defeated and your accuser has been silenced, you know, man, I have nothing to fear because if God is for you, who can be against you? You're safe. Your king reigns and he's coming for you. But thirdly, he becomes for us the king who heals every hurt. Zechariah 9 verse 10. Now we cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. And at first glance, that looks like a promise that this king is going to bring wars and conflicts to an end. And it is, because Christ's kingdom is expanded not by the sword, but by the spirit, and by spirit-transformed hearts. And Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Listen, when you know the depth that Christ has plumbed for you, when you understand the measure of his love for you, and that you are secure in him, amidst all the chaos, amidst all the hurt of life, Jesus speaks peace to your heart. And yet, it's even more than that. You see, when God says he shall speak peace to the nations, that word peace is the word shalom, that all-encompassing peace of God 
the peace in which every wrong is made right, the peace in which every hurt is healed, and not just your life, but all of creation is renewed. Guys, which king can possibly do that? Which king can heal everything? Only a king whose heart is pierced with the grief and whose body is crushed with the sin and the shame and the brokenness of the whole world. Only a king who could absorb all of our sin, all of our hurt, all of our brokenness, all of that of the world. Only a king who could absorb all of that into himself and exhaust it and then cry, it is finished. And the only king who could do that is the king over all creation. And Christ's resurrection from the dead tells us he's done it. That king has come and he has done it. And the new creation has begun. And by his wounds, we are healed. So this Palm Sunday, this Easter, crown him as your king. The king of joy. The king over all your fears. And the king who heals every one of your hurts. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we see the Lord Jesus, our King, Lord, riding into Jerusalem, and Lord, as we know what will await, Lord, his enthronement on the cross, and yet then, three days later, you raising him from the dead. And now, Lord, as we look at him with the eyes of faith, seated in the throne above every throne, Father, may the goodness of that fill each one of our hearts. Lord, may it, may it quiet every anxiety. Lord, may it strengthen our hearts in the face of every fear. Lord, may it heal all of our hurts. Lord, as we look to him, knowing that our king reigns. And Father, we are so glad that he does. Father, so we choose to bend our knee and we choose to confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the King. Lord, to the glory of your name. Amen.